Welcome back to the Like a Bigfoot podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ward. Uh, I am super excited for this week's episode with Scott Rokas. Um, I've been like a huge fan of Scott uh, for years now, it seems. Um, he is an incredible outdoor adventure photographer. Um, he has worked on a lot of big time, big time, big time ultras, uh, along with many other sports, which we get into into this podcast. Um, all around the world, he's done all of Candace Burt's 200-mile uh, races, a lot of the pictures from those races. Uh, if you see them, they're some of Scott's work. Um, and also his buddy, Howie Stern. I have to say that too. Howie does amazing work too. I'm just as big of a fan. Howie, if you're listening to this dude, I want to talk to you for the podcast too. <laughs> um, but he just, Scott does just amazing way. He has an amazing way of like telling a story with the pictures uh, that he takes. And I'm a huge believer that photography is a form of storytelling. You know, if you look at a good picture, that picture is telling you a story. And if someone can get it right, uh, and especially during these extreme ultras, uh, in this episode, we talk a lot about the Iditarod Trail Invitational. and we talk about how how can one capture that? Like, how can one capture just the vastness of the Alaskan wilderness and these hardened ultra runners making their way through the frozen wastelands? <laughs> um, and I think Scott just does an amazing job explaining that, um, which I'm super excited for. He also just has a really fascinating tale of, you know, stepping outside your comfort zone and pursuing your path in life, pursuing something that you are passionate about, that you want to make a career of because you just love it so much. And Scott has a story where he left a a comfy job where he could be, you know, you could see yourself doing, doing that work for 20, 30 years and stepping out on onto his own path where he's the boss and he's the one finding his own way. Uh, And I always, I love those stories. Like they're so inspiring to me Um, because I'm, I just think you have this life and you know, you have to kind of think like what, what is it that makes this life worth living? What is it that makes, makes me not just zone out and go on zombie mode or go on, you know, just fall into your routine day after day after day and then wake up like 10 years later like, whoa, did I just blink and it's been 10 years? That's crazy. Like what makes you passionate about getting out there and experiencing this beautiful world that we have, uh, you know, and experiencing the other people in that world. And I think Scott just does an amazing job um, explaining his story and also kind of like letting us in on like, it's not easy. Like there are challenges along the way, there are ups and downs, there are obstacles you have to face. Uh, and how do you persist in the face of these like seemingly insurmountable obstacles? And then if you combine that with what he's photographing, like these 200 mile races or the 350, like I did a rod, you know, like there's just a lot of parallels between his story and the subjects that he chooses uh, to pursue. Plus, he grew up like 30 minutes from my house, fellow Midwesterner, right on the Mississippi River, right across the Mississippi River. 
Um, so I'm super psyched. We talk about that a lot at the beginning. So let's get into it. This is the Like a Bigfoot podcast number 254 with Scott Rokas. All right, ladies and gents, today we are going to welcome Scott Rokas to the show. Scott is an amazing photographer. I've been a fan for years now, so I'm super excited to, to sit down and chat with you. Um, just realized you're from Kelowna, Illinois, and I am from the great town of Muscatine, Iowa, across the river. That is right. I always heard muscatine growing up but i wouldn't say that i actually know muscatine i just know yeah it's there it's yeah. near the quad cities but i mean it's probably much like Kelowna, where except we're a little closer but there it's a i think we call the motto is the gateway to the quad cities nice. which means people just drive through our town all the time <laughs> <laughs> well we're the pearl of the mississippi because of pearl oh. buttons or something i don't know i don't know well nice, nice i always describe it as like if iowa's a face you know like has that big nose we're like the booger of yeah, iowa. i was gonna say that yeah i mean i didn't want to say it but you said it <laughs> <laughs> no, i love muscatine uh i want to ask you some like quad city specific questions then what like what did oh, you okay. what were you into growing up like were you in the quad cities all the time like what what were you up to yeah so i mean quad cities was town Right. So if we're going downtown, yeah. Uh, going into town, like you're going that direction. I went to school out in Geneseo. Okay. So my school was 15 miles um, to the east and the Quad Cities was about five, 10 miles uh, to the west. And so, you know, we had family that lived in there. We, we did some things in there, but not a lot. Yeah. Right. I mean, uh, going to North Park was more of a trip. We would always go to South Park. Yeah. Right. We'd go downtown Moline because I think that's where we were. My grams worked as a eye doctor or downtown service Moline. And, and then growing up, I was a played in drumline and I was a drummer uh, through school. And I would always take the one ways into Augustana and do my lessons there or take the one ways on 23rd Avenue to McCabe Music um, near the 74 bridge or 74 Interstate 74 uh, growing up. So I guess as I came into high school, uh, I was on that side. So music was very important. And then your traditional basketball, baseball, team yeah. sports. Yeah. Were you yeah. going to the mark of the Quad Cities? I heard my cousin was one of the uh, construction companies building the mark of the Quad no Cities. No way. Dude, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, that was beginning in his career. I definitely remember like uh, Chris, he, uh, yeah, he's one of my cousins. I was like, oh my God, like, you get to work on the the market of the quad cities i feel like i had a prom there once no way yeah dude we no. always had prom in like the ymca <laughs> <laughs> uh palmer was my first ever rock concert um i think bush opened for uh uh google dolls nice and then if anybody in the quad cities remembers this concert like I'm so jealous is when the Smashing Pumpkins came and played at the Mark and I was new to concerts. And so like they played the last song, I went outside, they played a two and a half hour encore and it was just legendary. And I was outside the doors because the other half of our party was inside listening to the two and a half hour concert and we couldn't get back in. 
dude you're like (laughs) (laughs) oh my god man that is wild yeah no it was funny because like every band would stop by but it would always be on on a tuesday night because you know it's not like chicago it'd be like in between chicago and like denver or something they'd be like we're gonna stop in moline on a tuesday and you're like oh yeah looks like i'm not going to school tomorrow but (laughs) but it's fantastic i'm sure you have the same feeling like i grew up with I don't know, 60 or 70 family members within a 15 yeah. mile radius. Yeah. Um, we could go to a show. We could go um, to Circa if we wanted to and see a theater thing, or we could see a minor league baseball game, or we could 10 minutes the other direction be in cornfields. And yeah. it was just a great place, I think, to to grow up. Now I have a penchant for mountains. Yeah. And I always had that curiosity. And once I moved out to the mountains when I was 27, I haven't left. Yeah. So that's been the hard part. All my family's still back there. I'm the only one out West, um, which is difficult, but I, I look back in my family history and it's like, well, my great grandfather came over around the 1917, 1918 from Greece, came over on the boat and like created this family that's 70 people, 75 people strong. Now he had to leave his family to do that. And um, it's, so it's, I unfortunately, you know, have no kids or anything, so it's not like I'm doing that out west. But there's that idea, that exploratory feel to life and seeing what's out there that I sort of inherit from my grandparents and great grandparents. No, I like that, like continuing the legacy on, you know, which is cool. Do you ever go back like when you like I go back now to Iowa and I have definitely a different appreciation for it. Um you know, my friends always make fun of me because I say Wildcat Den is one of my favorite places to run. And they're like, no. And I'm like, yeah, dude, seriously. And then part of it is just because it reminds me of home and it's nostalgia and stuff. But there is like, I'm like, oh, this is really beautiful. Like we're on the bluffs of the Mississippi River. Like this is prettier than I gave it credit for growing up. Like, do you have that feeling at all? Yeah, for sure. I've driven from... I've driven across this country several times and driven like from California to Illinois, I don't know, at least 10 times. Yeah. And once you get past uh, Cheyenne and you're into the plains of Nebraska and um, you get into the hills of Iowa, you're just like, I enjoy this drive. It's not the mountains, you know, it's not Wyoming, it's not Nevada, um, but it's gorgeous. Yeah. You know, it's, it's beautiful. So I, I definitely appreciate the um the importance of tradition the importance of family you know the importance of community i think living out west where i've been just outside of lake tahoe for the last 14 years or so it's a transient community and that's a different feel than growing up in a farm-based community where there's routine and there's hard work and there's looking out for your your neighbor uh, I don't see that as much in certain areas out West. Yeah. Yeah, so, definitely, yeah. man. Well, I want to hear, obviously I want to hear your story, how you, cause you made like a huge pivot into becoming this amazing outdoor photographer. Um, but first, before we get into that, I want to, I, I know, uh, Ryan Wanless, who's been on the podcast a bunch of times, an awesome guy. Um, he kind of hooked, uh, hooked us up uh, with the interview because you were up in the middle of n- nowhere in Alaska on the Iditarod course this year. 
doing photography, but also working in aid station. So I kind of want to hear just about that experience to start. Like what, obviously Iditarod is like, I mean, to me, it's like the epitome of an adventure, you know, like you hear the word Iditarod and you're like, whoa, that's an, that's an adventure. That's a real adventure. Um, like how, what brought you to that race? Yeah. Um, and thanks for Ryan for connecting this. I'll go ahead and let everybody know that Chris sent me an email a couple of years ago <laughs> and I never responded. I'm pretty sure so I sent you an I email. Wanted, like, <laughs> I was trying to think, like, did I, bad. did I send an email cause you took a race photo and I wanted to see if I could use yeah. it for the podcast, which by yeah, the way, so I didn't, common thing. I didn't use it no because I'm honorable. It's, <laughs> It's a, it's a really hard thing in this, in the photography world to, um, cause I definitely understand that like, you know, podcasters aren't, the majority of them aren't earning their living at this, you know, and I'm lucky that I have lived a simple life in the last five years and that I can figure out how to make a living in photography. And so you, you just, it's hard to let that stuff go away for free. Yeah. And so like I, after these 200 mile races, you get lots of requests for imagery and like, I feel bad, but also I want to like keep value on the work. And like some podcasters come back and they just, they're harsh. They're just like, they're like, I shouldn't be charging any fee and blah, blah, blah. And some people pay it. And then, and then eventually I just get tired because what I'm effectively chasing is a few cups of coffee. Yeah. And it's like, well, I I should find a better way to figure that out. But anyway, (laughs) that's funny, man. No, it's an interesting perspective though, because you're right. Like you're out there on a 200 mile race for days taking this yeah, beautiful, yeah. these beautiful pictures. I mean, they are, they're worth, they're worth something, especially to the racers or to the media. Like they, they truly are and you've earned them, you know? Well, yeah. And you just see like, well, that person took a hundred thousand photos on their phone. You use one of those. <laughs> But no, they want the one that looks really good. So I get yeah. it. I, I, yeah. I get it. You know. Come on. Um, so it took me out to to. So thank you for Ryan for getting getting this uh, going. But um, I've had this passion for a long time for remote places, and uh, I, I don't think I've resolved where that comes from. What what interests interests me in that, but I enjoy it, and it it's just this. I think maybe that sort of piece of seeing a part of the world that helps you put the rest of the world we live in in perspective and i and i like that i like playing with that idea and so specifically on the iti um it's funny how circles and things come around in life and kate coward and i worked together back in 2006 2007 uh, up until like maybe 2008 or 9 um, as we traveled around the world for general electric and then again outside of Uh, Tahoe and Nevada and Kate had moved on moved back to Minnesota he kind of didn't keep in great touch and then I was shooting Arrowhead one year and lo and behold Kate's there and I was like oh like crazy I didn't know you you did these things and she I think she's doing it on bike and then next year I go back to Arrowhead and she's doing 270 miles on foot with Kari Gibbons and it's just like okay, okay we're, we're in the worlds now. Like this is, I've now left my corporate career. I'm doing this full time. You're doing things that women have never done before. Uh, and only a few men have ever done. So like, let's start chatting. Um, 
we tried to get me out to ITI last year, um, and it didn't it, it didn't work out. And so this year, it was like, yeah, like that's a race that you don't just go photograph. Um, you have to be prepared. You have to be uh, sanctioned or approved or like part of the race staff um, because it's it's legitimate. Like I feel like we had a relatively weather easy year but you're still hitting temps negative 30 and less wow um and your tough years you're you're negative 16 and the worse and so um as i've pursued this career in photography the last five years i want to challenge myself i mean you lift weights that's how you get stronger you do cardio it's how your heart gets stronger like you get stronger by putting yourself in situations where you're forced to learn and forced to build a skill, forced to push your, your drive to the limit, forced to push your camera equipment, see how far it can go. Like I broke a shutter at Arrowhead one year because it was negative 35 and the actual camera broke. Um, was that the so polar vortex year? Was that the that was the polar, yeah. That was polar vortex year. That's side note. That's why I reached out to Ryan, by the way, originally. Okay. I was like yeah, finished. I was like, these crazy people ran 130 miles in a quote unquote polar vortex. And I was like, I have to reach out to whoever got DFL. And yeah. so I looked it up, it was Ryan, and I'm like, you're the toughest man in the United States that weekend. <laughs> but and dude if it's cold enough it's yeah it's breaking shutters on cameras man like that has to be pretty dang cold i'll uh i'll put a shout out for jeff uh i think um he did it without using any support like melt his own water and everything i think at one point he went over 12 hours without water because it was just he just didn't want to stop and melt any Oh my God. Sorry, sorry, Ryan. I'll give you second, second. (laughs) Dude, I'm telling you, man, the winter ultras are something else. Like, well, I'm drawn to the people of them. Like who, so, you know, I've wrestled this, this question a lot in my life is, okay, we all walk. We all like to do things in the mountains. Um, Not we all, but a lot of people do. Um, You know, we all have to go to the grocery store in the winter when maybe it's zero, but there's a subset of our culture that chooses to spend hundreds and thousands of dollars to go purposely walk long distances or ride their bike in long distances in the state of earth. So like I'm drawn to that um, idea, that location. And I mean, if I go back to the beginning of my work and I, I photographed my first 200 mile race in 2014, um i didn't understand my vision behind the camera at that point i you have to work through it you have to work through it for years and years and years um but what i understood is like if i work harder than everybody else i'm going to get a shot that they don't have and at that time in race photography a lot of the imagery was from a few miles within the aid station not 10 15 miles out and so my focus was i don't have the vision yet to beat a photographer, another photographer, or to get my work noticed, essentially. Um, not to be one, but to, to get my work noticed. But I can work harder and just get a shot that they don't have. And so it'll be interesting based on that new location. Yeah. I mean, that 
I don't want to undersell my eye, but like at that point in time in 2014, that's what I was motivated to to figure out. Like, just get to the places where there aren't people, and and that's that's what's interesting in ITI is I think that I have something that I can bring. Um, but I, you can't just show up and bring it without race. You have to dedicate the time to go see it and figure it out. Like it took us five days of waiting to get a weather window to be able to fly out there. So the first day of racers had already come through. Yeah. What? Really? Yeah. Yeah. So what, we, what aid station were you, were you at? We were at checkpoint at Finger Lake. So it was mile 125 and 250. Dang. And so you put that into another context and you say like, okay, if you're trying to be out there on foot and trying to capture this on the course with some of the athletes, um, you might get that weather window where you're, you thought the checkpoint was going to be six hours away, but now it's going to be 15 hours away, 18 hours away, and you've got a deal. But I like that challenge. Yeah, no, I'm, that's like taking it to the ultimate, right? Like the whole idea of I'm going to get to where most photographers aren't going to be. And now you're doing it like to the, to the utmost, like almost extreme level in the Iditarod. That's crazy. So you had to take a little plane in there, right? Yeah. So we took a, a two door, uh three seater on the way in. I'm trying to, I was looking up a, uh, some of the pictures of just Finger Lake at the Iditarod and yeah, man, it looks, it looks out there. <laughs> and, and one of the deals is, is I did race cross country in um, junior high. And I think I was uh, dead last of the race, every race in seventh grade. And then eighth grade, I got most improved because I think I was only dead last on my team, but no longer dead last of the race. Did they give you um, like a DFL award? Did they call that, call it that in seventh grade? <laughs> no, they give, they give you like, the, uh, I don't know, the most effort, and like whatever. I, don't, yeah, some, yeah. I did get some sort of award, but. The Rudy um, award. <laughs> yeah the PC version of the DFL, the, um, <laughs> the, the, the thing that was important to me is I never had a good race photo. I'm in the middle of the pack. I'm not going to be on a cover. I'm not like, a, it's just like a, a typical boring race photo. And so what I thought I could bring to the market was, um, I, I don't have a strong focus on the elites, the front, like people that are on the top typically, because I don't know a lot of them cause I would never be with them. Yeah. And so my idea was when I started getting into race photography, it was just create that cover style image for the bulk of the pack. Nice. Um, it, it's harder as a career because you don't get the magazine interest. You don't get the product interest. You don't get the PR interest because you don't have that extreme athlete that, that wins everything. Um, but it's the connections you make are certainly um, what's, been a motivation factor for me because people really show their appreciation uh, in the middle of the pack for the the type of imagery that I like to create. Yeah. I think, do you think that's shifting at all from away from, Oh yeah. Yeah. Cause I think with people yeah. there more, there's more platforms for people to tell their stories. And you know, if you hear about an amazing person who finished back of the pack in the Moab 240, it's like, it doesn't matter that they weren't an elite athlete. Like they finished 
240 miles. Like, and if they have a great story going in, I just feel like there's more interest in that kind of, it's kind of like trending in that direction a little bit. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome, man. So you, you get dropped off and it's like this little <laughs> camp. It looks like, did, I mean, you're working the aid station too. I mean, how did you balance that kind of working the aid station plus doing photography plus trying to survive in Alaska, <laughs> like all that stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I didn't know what I was getting into. I, I didn't know, like they said we had a cabin nearby that yeah. had electricity. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I wasn't exactly sure what was going to happen or what the setup was. Um, and then I was going out there with Shay Palmgren from Minnesota, and she's a medic at a lot of the races up in Minnesota. And um, kind of, you know, the same effort that I go from a photography standpoint and runners go through for theirs, Shay's pulling these all nighters, taking care of yeah. all the athletes, right? And um, so she's experienced, I've experienced, I've, um, Prior to the photography career, I was on search and rescue for eight years. So I have some familiarity with um, cold weather and exertion and endurance and all those factors. And so the only thing, there's a lodge right behind our tent that's $2,500 a night or three grand a night or whatever. So like there's people paying enormous sums of money to come stay at this lodge that we don't have any access to. Um, but we can stand outside their kitchen and get a little piece of their satellite Wi-Fi so we can see the track the athletes and when they're coming in. Yeah. Um, so yeah, living out there, it was, uh, there was a cabin that we did get access to. It was maybe a five, 10 minute walk away, uh, no electricity, no heat, um, a fireplace on the inside. So you kind of have to manage that. But like the first night, um, I think we got done taking care of everything about two in the morning. And so I went to sleep and just got in my sleeping bag. It's negative 15, negative 20 out. And it's like, eh, I don't feel like throwing a fire and I'm just going to go ahead and sleep yeah. uh, in the sleeping bag. But it was actually, it, we had a really good year for weather. <clears throat> and so you've got this canvas tent. Um, it was like a party size tent and the athletes would come in there. And um, at this level, when you get to this type of race, you shouldn't find too many newbies. And so the athletes more or less know how to take care of themselves. They have their routines. They come in, um, they take their wet clothes off, they get them dried, they get a little bit of food, they um, fall asleep, they get up, they eat, and they leave. Um, and so they're not like that, sticking around for a long, long time. No, no, no. Some are there for 12 hours. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like there is one guy, I was like, you came in at midnight. Like, <laughs> are we feeding you dinner tonight? Like, what's the deal? <laughs> that would be me. That got, sounds like a good yeah. race strategy if you're asking me. Yeah. Get, get going. You got 200 miles. To do. He's like, I'm getting the most out of this vacation right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it ended up being um, gorgeous. Our, our days were in the mid teens. Um, most of the time full sun, we had a little bit of wind there, not, not anything bad. And then we're kind of tucked in this cove or on a lake. So every once in a while you'd hear the crack shoot all the way across this lake. And it's just a reminder like, oh yeah, we're, we're on ice. Like we are all set up on ice. Um, and then it's amazing. You think like I'm in the Alaskan wilderness. This is just, but on a clear day, 
that's that's transport day. So there's helicopters, there's planes, there's there's snow machines. It's like it's yeah. constant traffic out there. And you really start to understand that, yeah, to us it's foreign and we had to take this 45 minute Cessna plane ride in um, to this remote place, but out there, it's a normal way of life. Like there's yeah. that's how they live. They they have to get around it some way. And so the very first racers that I took pictures of. I, it was like near sunset after the day we finally got in there and I see these two people and they're coming towards me, mountain backdrop, like it's perfect. This is the set I want. And they're getting closer and I'm just like, and I'm looking and I'm just like, oh, those are just two people out cross country skiing. And it was this couple that owns their own bush plane and decided since it was a gorgeous day and the previous five days have been cloudy, they just went for a flight, parked the plane down on this strip of land went out for a cross-country ski wow and went off. wow and yeah. you're like hey uh i just took an amazing picture of you guys uh <laughs> send, me, send me your email and yeah, i'll definitely yeah. let you let you get it yeah. <laughs> yeah dude that's so crazy well i wanted to ask you too like you know you're out there you're you're as a photographer i have to imagine like you're trying to capture someone's story in this image, you know, and I, I personally love doing the podcast because I love hearing people's stories and sharing them. And, you know, it's kind of like somewhat of a form of storytelling a bit or allowing people to have like a space where they can share their stories. And with your photography, you have that challenge of like, I'm going to take this one image and it's going to tell this story. Um, is there any images coming out of the Iditarod that you're like that, told that story and like that you're just really happy with yeah so there's a um there's a combination between i was only able to see three miles of trail yeah of what was effectively 175 maybe you can call it 190 unique miles because this year was unique and they had to go out and back covid yeah. uh, which is really cool because then i could stay at that aid station for six days seven days whatever and we'd see all the racers come back through again, right? That's kind of a unique scenario. Um, so it's hard to tell an athlete's story when you only see them for 1% of the race. Um, so what I end up typically capturing in this particular race, uh, the 200s are different. Those that I can see are icy racers front to, front to back. Um, in this one, uh, I was really just, exploring and trying to get a feel for the landscape um what i mean by that is like shooting moab for the first time it's different trying to shoot a runner when there's a 2000 foot cliff a mile behind them versus shooting a runner in tahoe where you've got some mountains but not that relief that significant relief change so close um, so how do you properly proportion your athlete within the frame that you want to create and so in, in Alaska, it was basically like you have this vastness. How do you pull that out so it looks different than the Arrowhead State Trail? Yeah. And a lot of that was drone work uh, to try and get up above. The Alaska has these black spruce trees that basically when you're on the river and you've got those black spruce trees, you can't see the gigantic mountains, right? So if I'm shooting that, like it's hard to really pull some of that detail out. So my interest was, was experimenting and getting up. And so a lot of my bigger photos, um, 
in combination with not having super nasty weather, it didn't really convey the brutality of this race. But there's a couple of photos uh, that I captured that when racers see them, they're just like, oh my God, you got that. So um, there's some, a few unfortunate scenarios with certain racers. And so like uh, Ray, who I've been at Arrowhead with and at Bigfoot with, um, I've probably been at some other races with Ray. Unfortunately, Ray has a little bit of a habit of, of getting off course. And so Ray's race was incredible. Like he got off course. He did 371 miles instead of 350. Yeah. He missed the Finger Lake checkpoint and did a long stretch, right? So making his race harder by missing that. And so one of the photos I captured was Ray hunched over looking at his GPS tracker, just like confused. And it's just like that, like that encompasses what a lot of people were seeing because he missed that thing like checkpoint pretty early on. Yeah. And so it's just like everybody that was watching the dots was just like, well, what's going to happen with Ray? Cause he skipped the checkpoint. Like, and unfortunately, like he didn't get an official finish, but mm. it, it doesn't take anything out of the way from the fact that he made his race harder. He did 370 miles, 71 miles, instead of 350. Like it's not an official finish, but whatever it's, it's that moment of him sitting in a chair, looking at his tracker and just being like, what? Like, <laughs> like, it, it was just an interesting yeah. thing. And then um, we had an athlete as well that uh, lost his iPhone or got damaged through a snowmobile and recovered it, got all the information from it. So it's great. But the most unique scenario I've ever seen, uh, he flew to Anchorage. He left the course, flew to Anchorage, got a brand new phone got his GPS and got everything to be able to document his race and came back to the course. And so, you know, not surprisingly, that eventually led to a DQ. Um, but what do That's I capture to start wild, the race? man. That's so wild. I know. Uh, it's crazy. I know. But like, I, 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 like, this is a life moment race. I get it. No, I, I get it too. And Cause you're like, I w I'm yeah, out yeah. there. I'm never going to be out here again. I want to have pictures so I can yeah. show people at home what I saw. I get it. It's hard because you put you put the race director, you put the race volunteers, you put us all in a difficult situation. So like, uh, I'm not interested in chatting about that. What I found really <laughs> yeah, funny no. was that uh, I'm at the starting line taking photos, and I'm not supposed to be there. And the, what do I have at the start? The whole race pack taking off, and this guy turning around looking directly at me with his phone. <laughs> Like if only like you a, could the, see the future, my man. <laughs> if if all of all the photos. So when I say like there's moments, yes, those moments aren't necessarily my best content from yeah. the race, or like you know tell all that. Um, but they are definitely standout stories. They're memorable. Sure. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's that's so wild. Yeah. I you know I talked to Ryan and I talked to Kari and you know, they mentioned that, I mean, it's still, a, it's an unbelievably brutal race, but just the weather wise just didn't hit as much as last yeah. year. And I know as yeah. a photographer, you're looking for like the ice beards and, and all the, you know, the tape on the noses and all that stuff to really show just how cold and how tough the, everything can be. But, you know, 
I have to imagine too, like you just mentioned, like the Alaskan wilderness is just so vast. Like, and how do you even capture that? Like, how do you really make someone understand just how vast that is? Yeah. I mean, um, the other side that typically isn't captured is a lot of the beauty because they typically do have weather. So yeah. we got oh, three yeah. or four days of, of sun. So seeing the um, sky, the blue hour. So after sunset, after golden hour, you get this blue and violet on the horizon and really punching into a few athletes and seeing the whole frame just be this, this purple color because wow. you're getting that magenta reflection off the snow as well. And the same thing with like the Northern Lights at night, you're getting a green undertone to everything because the, the white ground is reflecting so much light from the sky that you're getting that color throughout your photo. So um, the beauty of the course is something that we could capture, we could capture a lot. And um, as far as capturing the vastness of the wilderness, mostly drone yeah and then aside from that you have to be very explorative with your angles so that you can for what i like to shoot is i separate my athletes from the black spruce that was everywhere and um get far enough away that you've got that little person because you've got this white canvas to work with so you can silhouette anybody like you you can make this gigantic image and you can make that athlete really jump out in it because you've got this white canvas to put them yeah. against. They're not going to blend in with the dirt, with the grass, with the rocks, the trees, they're, they're clear. So I think that's the way that if I'm not shooting on the drone that I can go about it is that I just am really particular in pre visualizing the photo that I want. And I got out on skis one day and went three miles up, um, on trail towards Pontilla and and I probably only found in that three miles you think oh last week you get photos everywhere but there's probably only two maybe three spots that really provided the right elevation that I needed in the right proportions and alignment of everything to get the people coming through yeah and then um, you know with the drone the overhead shots really tell the story early late in the day you get that something that gives you all the texture and you're just like it's just them and the snow. Yeah. That's so cool. So, man. Yeah. That's so cool. Um, I want to hear just about kind of about your, what like, what gave you the guts, you know, in the middle of having a career to just be like, Hey, I'm going to actually pursue my passion. Um, I know it's something people talk about all the time, right? People are like, you know, yeah pursue the things that you love and things. But for the, I, whenever I talk to someone who actually did it, I always just think it's an interesting perspective because so many people hear that and they're like, that sounds good, but, and then they list all the reasons why they can't, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I had the idea for five years. I researched and read things for two years. Yeah. Um, I did it in little increments. I bought my first van in the fall of 2014, beginning of 2015, somewhere around there. Um, and I wish I could say it was a hundred percent. Like I went and made this, but even after that five years of playing with ideas and 
really going back to my childhood where I always wanted to run my own business, but I didn't know in what. I thought I'd spend my 20s with a major corporation essentially training myself on how businesses operate. Yeah. Um, and so I did that. I saw the entertainment industry, the hydroelectric industry, commercial real estate, consumer real estate, or consumer finance, aviation, and energy generation, and oil and gas. So I was like, okay, I have a good idea of how these markets work. Now, uh, what can I go start a business in? And I couldn't come up with an answer, but I came to a point at work that I could see the writing on the wall where the eight, nine years that I built this program up um, was going to be handed over to somewhere else. No other job, 300,000 jobs in GE, not one of them had my interest. Yeah. And so um, I had met a woman at the time and we started dating and she had been working for a long time. We're like, well, let's just take a couple of years off and go travel. Uh, we're 35, no kids. Like, uh, let's, let's try it out. And so that was the catalyst. I, I wish I could say that it was me and my own strength and I, I can do this. And like, it, but it was just the meeting the right person that drove the motivation to, to take a risk. Yeah. Well, it's probably rarely just someone by themselves being like, I'm going for it. Like it honestly, like that's the f- kind of fantasy view of, you know, what people think. Right. But I think the reality is much more important because that's how you actually get from point A to point Z. Right. Like there's all these steps in between and sometimes to the outside world, it just looks like you just skipped all those steps and you're like, now you're a successful <laughs> guy doing what you're passionate about, you know? So I think that's interesting. Yeah, it, and it, that's why I like hearing these stories because I like when people share those kind of like details. Yeah. And it's, it, um, I gave four months notice. So lots of time to say, change my mind. Never mind. I'm gonna, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go and stay. So yeah, did the four months notice. And then three weeks into the travel, we broke up and I was on my own. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, it, I, I give that relationship a lot of credit for getting me over the hump and actually yeah. uh, taking it on. And, and then, but it wasn't the right, the right long-term relationship. Um, and then all of a sudden I'm, I'm three weeks out there and I've spent 65, 70% of the money I'd saved in that first month. <laughs> the van was broken. Like, uh, you know, a, a lastest effort to get the relationship to, to, so the travel was really expensive in that month. And um, I had thrown accidentally a client's whole shoot, deleted it off the hard drive. Oh, and so geez. I just thought, man, this is I'm, like, this is what, this is what I read about. Yeah. People pursue change. Um, and they always say, have more cash than what you think you're going to go through. And um, they, uh, they get forced to do essentially like a reset, like there's challenges that you have to start facing. Yeah. But you learn from those challenges, you know, but that's funny because yeah, I've yeah. done that. I've done that on vacations where it's like, okay, we're going to set this side of this amount of money done, like aside for, for the vacation, you know? And then you get there and you're like night one, you're like fanciest meal. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. 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 But I mean, it's weird. I was, you know, I had salary since I was a second year or third year of college. And so that was 14, 15 years of salary. And it was just like, okay, like this is, you are now responsible for generating your own income. And I, 
I believe every family, every adult should be first first responder certified trained. Like if you're a parent, you should be certified as a first responder. Um, I think if if you I think through school we should all practice running our own businesses. When you have to go out and use your own skill set to generate an income, there's an enormous amount of confidence that comes from it. Um, but it's hard and it takes yeah. time. Do you, yeah. do you struggle with, like, I have some friends who are entrepreneurs and at times they struggle with just like putting that aside and like taking a break because if you're not actively working, then like nobody's actively working. You know what I mean? Do you struggle with that at all? Yeah. No, nobody's running my business for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. I work, I work a seven day work week, without a doubt. Yeah. And I was always, Yeah. I recommend to them, like, go outside, like, go, you know, go for a hike, take a break, you know, and your job obviously includes part of that. Those, that's some aspects that it includes, you know? Yeah. For me, like we have Coca Donor 250 coming up and I'm going to be photographing that along with two other people. Dude, I've heard that race is great. No, nobody knows yet, but we'll, we'll put an announcement out there this week. Um, it's, um, but yeah, for me to go cover 60, 70 miles that week, I need to be fit. So the beauty is, is like today, um, you know, I met a friend, we went for a walk and we chatted for two to three hours. And it's a lot of idea generation, like just yeah. putting feelers out there and see where they go. And like, yeah, sure. That's my Thursday morning. So I, I work a little bit all, all days of the week, but at the same time, my schedule is my own schedule. I yeah. can, it, it's so nice. And that's what I wanted was to have my schedule be my own schedule. Yeah. When you were going through the beginning initial changes and you were feeling some of that resistance in the form of like obstacles that were in your way, like how did you, how did you keep pushing through them? Because, you know, there, that could happen to somebody, what you just described. And, you know, after a month there, they just go back to their regular routine and it would, to me, I'd be like, Hey man, like I completely understand why you went back to your regular routine, you know, but what, what, what like drove you through those or pushed you past those? Well, I, I know what the regular routine is and I, I wasn't, um, I hadn't even given myself a chance. And so I understood, like, I understood that my growth in the corporate world, it was five years until I got to a role that I was, I could start to drive change. Yeah, I could start to influence. And so there was a ton of hours. Like For two years, it was 80-hour work weeks were the minimum and uh, 100 were the push weeks. And so you go through that and you just learn you, you have to put in your time. I don't, it, it's hard, I think, when you're in your mid-30s to say, I have to be low man on the totem pole again. And so just to give your audience a bit of a rundown of, I thought the breakup, was a difficult way to start in the like the quick draw on the cash um the reason i stayed is the very next thing like i went from those few weeks traveling with her to my first job as a professional photographer and it was shooting a nine-day um mountain festival in tahoe for up sports centered on skiing snowshoeing um, night time events for everybody, just getting our whole human powered community to get community together and playing in the mountains and then gathering at night. 
you do nine days of that and you're like, oh, good God, this is the right career path for me. Like, <laughs> this this is what I want. These are the people yeah. that get me. They're supportive. Yeah. Um, I get to go out and ski all day and take pictures. And um, so I was like, okay, this is, I'm going to find a way to make this work. But throughout that 2016 year, um, I was very invested in the relationship. So it was hard to accept that that was not going to happen. So and I'm living in the van. Um, I'm on the road and I'm figuring out the whole van life working remotely. And then um, I, in, in the first part of travels, I had like dislocated something in my back or my SI joint wasn't tracking. So that took four or five months to get fixed. And then I got to running. And then so in August of that year, um, I was mountain biking and took a wreck, broke a rib, six bones in my foot. Um, I think that was mostly it. So that sets me back. It's like, okay, well, my big money makers are coming up in the next few weeks. The only thing I'm going to make money on in 2016, and now I've broken my foot. Yeah. Um, so I end up still doing uh, three miles in the air boot. And then two weeks later, so five weeks after I broke it, I did 50 miles in the boot. <laughs> Stupid. Like my hips were horribly out of place after after walking in a boot that's an inch and a half taller. Yeah. With one leg. But I was, you know, I was I was driven. I had to make this work, and I, and I knew I could, and I honored my commitments. Um, so I'm like, okay, this has been a tough year financially. Lost a bunch of money. Um, I made some great photos. I made a lot of photos I wanted to pursue, and so I was like, okay, you're not out of it yet. And where that had led me was I started to get the ear of Backcountry Magazine for skiing. So I got a feature in there in the winter of 2017, um, started getting connected to some ski suppliers. And it's like, okay, this is how things start rolling. My network is starting to grab some tentacles. My name's getting around a little bit. Great. Um, March 1st, I go off to shoot a story on, uh, or go with some friends and create some images around um, a, a backcountry ski mountaineer route that hadn't been photographed particularly well. And an hour and a half into that day, I, I go over a cliff and fall uh, 30 feet in the air, about 100 feet overall, and Jeez. blow out ACL, MCL, meniscus, medial lateral meniscus, and, uh, and cartilage. Dang. And so now I'm laying on the side of the mountain, and that's when you, that's when you get to ask, answer the question. Um, that's when you say, why am I doing this? Yeah. And how badly do I want to do this is, do I really see myself having a career in photography? And what kept motivating myself in 2016 through some of the adversity was that I hadn't made a dent. I hadn't made an impact anywhere. I hadn't figured myself out. And then in 17, I had started to figure the industry out a little more. And then it was immediately ripped away from me because I was yeah. going as a ski mountaineering and an, and an expedition style photographer. And I knew at that moment, it would be at least four years until I could get competently back out in the mountains. Um, and so waiting, I had five hours to wait for the helicopter and you, you ask yourself, I asked myself, if you have to go take kid pics in the mall for the next 18 months. Is that what you'd rather do 
than go make six figures in an office? Yeah. And the answer is yes. Yeah. So like those moments of extreme stress on your body provide you the best clarity you're going to get, the best focus. Like I now had structure. I had to do X, Y, Z every single day in order to get myself back to a healthy period. And that was going to take years. Yeah. And so with that focus, it just draws the focus. It's so, okay. Financially, I lost a bunch of money in the first year. I'm losing money so far in 2017. How do we start to write this ship? What, what tools do I have? So I went back and I did some consulting work. I used the skill set that I developed through my 20s. And I was like, okay, I need cash. So I, I can go be a consultant with a corporation for a little while and get some of that cash. And the first day back in the office, um, it was funny. The, my old colleagues were like, we didn't ever expect to see you back in here. <laughs> and uh, I sat down at the desk and I was just like, oh, no, I'll take those last 15 months over this any day of the week like yeah. it was very clear but i now had a very clear task at hand yeah, there's um had to figure out the financial side of the business and i had to figure out clients i had to figure out how licensing agreements works like i just i, I told myself you you don't quit when you're at your lowest like get yourself to january 2018 <clears throat> don't don't quit yet like figure it out get yourself to january get yourself another nine months get to january 2018 and make a call. You'll be two years out of the corporate world by then, which is yeah. like a, like an unwritten rule of being out too long for coming back in or whatever. Um, or at least in my head, that was my rule. So, so that's what I did. Uh, I consulted for a bit. I worked on a little bit of photography stuff when I could. Um, I still had that drive, which was a, a problem because four and a half years after surgery, or four and a half years, four and a half months later after surgery, the 200s were how I was making my name. And not only that, they were how I was challenging myself to shoot in all conditions of the day. Shoot when you're, when you've only, when you've been out for 40 hours straight. Shoot when it's two in the morning and you've only seen one runner for two hours. Like shoot in the rain, shoot in the cold. Like it's just those 200s provide you a four and a half day window to push yourself and see what you can do and create these lifelong memories yeah. for 200 people. Um, so for a second year, the year before 2016, they saw me do all these miles in a boot. And now in 2018, I'm back and I'm in a brace and I did 46 <laughs> miles of the Bigfoot course, four and a half months after surgery. And then I did 50 miles at Tahoe and I think 30 at Moab. Dude, no wonder yeah. Candace respects you so much, you know, <laughs> like this guy. You know, I, I'm not going to give up on my commitments. You know, that's not, not only that, like that's when we integrated how in myself together. Yeah. Cause I was like, Candace, I'm injured. I'm not going to give up on these races, but really honestly, you need at least two people to cover these things. Yeah. yeah. And so. Um, dude, that's yeah, amazing. So well, think, it sounds, it sounds like you had, there's like the common ultra runner advice, which is like, don't quit on the uphill or don't die in the yeah. chair. One of those moments where you're like, okay, I'm not going to quit in my lowest moment. 
you know? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, dude, that's super interesting. And, you know, you've probably seen these things play out in these 200 mile races, you know? And I mean, walking 40 miles or 50 miles in a boot at the same time, you're also having that, <laughs> that, uh, endurance challenge yourself, which just side note, like, that's why I love these races so much. Cause the crew, the photographers, the med crew, like everybody has their own little adventures along the way to support people getting through this big, crazy yeah. distance, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, there's a racer at the ITI that came in in mile 125 and was just like, wanted to quit, wanted to quit. And I didn't say anything. I was just kind of yeah. like, you know, you need to sleep. And so he slept like eight hours or something. I don't know, six, eight hours. Got up and did the next 175 miles or two, whatever. Yeah, 275 miles and finished. That's and he's like, you didn't, you didn't get on me. You didn't like, and I was like, wouldn't have done anything you were tired like go to sleep make a decision when you're fresh like don't you're not in a state to make a decision so like give yourself a chance and yeah that's what i tell my kids at night i tell my kids the same thing i'm like you need to sleep you need to eat those are the two things you need to do ultra running we learned this (laughs) yeah but no man that's that's amazing and so you know obviously from there you've expanded out from the 200 mile races and now you're covering all sorts of events. Um, is there, and I've, you know, I've seen like mountain bike stuff you've done. Obviously you mentioned like the ski mountaineering stuff, Mm -hmm. like what, I know you have to bring like a different skill to each of those because they're different sports, but is there, is there one that really stands out on as being like a challenge for you or one that you're like, Oh, I'm definitely super passionate about this or, or something like that. expedition work i would say in general um i would like to um get into because so many reasons like skiing is definitely challenging you often backcountry skiing in particular you often can't tell the person to go back and ski that line again one they've skied through they've ruined the snow so like your canvas of the shot that you wanted yeah. is now ruined and then plus you gotta take the time to go uphill and the sun moves and so you're lighting i think one of the most interesting things that i like is certain photographers that that shoot skiing really well which i don't but I, it's stuff to aspire to that really understand how to use lighting and snow it's such a dynamic interface that dirt doesn't quite do it as effectively as a really well lit um ski turn yeah um, so I, I think with that, I winter, I guess if I could say it and I haven't done it, winter ski mountaineering expedition stuff, I think would be a super challenge. Um, but I, I want to find the story in there that's unique and not just like, hey, we're going to go cool this ski mountain. They're going to go ski this cool mountain and come away with it. And so that's where I've really appreciated ultra, these ultra races is that I can get to know people yeah. better. And everybody um, there has a story. Like seriously, like everyone during the well, during these races. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh dude, I love that man. Well, I promised I wouldn't keep you very long, but then I just realized we haven't even talked right about me. Okay, we haven't even talked about the film that you're working on. And I'm super interested in hearing about that. <clears throat> and it's kind of like 
to connect to your own personal story. Um, it's about telling stories where people had to go through, like you, you mentioned either involuntary or voluntary, voluntary change. Um, I know that's obviously a topic you're super connected to, which is makes you like a really good person to tell this story. Um, can you kind of like give us a little update about that or like tell us kind of what, how that project's going? Cause that's really interesting now, like going from photography to film, has that been a hard transition or? Yeah. And I've failed along the way for sure. <laughs> like, um, yeah. Unfortunately, like you, especially early on, you want to promise the world. Uh, you want everybody to be a client. You want everybody to be a lifelong client. Yeah. There's some people maybe you don't want to be lifelong. You figure that out, but you want to, in my mind, I want to over deliver. And so I over promised early yeah. on in my career. It's like, my camera has a button that says it shoots film. I shoot film. Yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah, I would, and, and I like the idea of a scrappy team. And so I would shoot photos and video of the same race. Uh, and then I really quickly understood that I have zero clue on how to cinematically edit video. I didn't want it to just be a highlight reel. I wanted it to be like something more interesting. And so, um, uh, I'm learning the storytelling piece, take the technology away from things and focus in on the story. And I think that's where I'm putting a lot of my effort now. And it's a fun place to get to, because if I look back at the five years, right, and let's compare it to my first five years of learning in GE is in the photo side. In 2016, it was like, yay, I'm a photographer. I'm living in a van, traveling the West Coast of British Columbia. Like, this is amazing lost a bunch of money. 2017, like you're figuring things out and you're losing money. In 2018, you break even and it's just like, oh, maybe there's, maybe I, this isn't just for fun. Like I can actually do things. And then, and then um, I started working a lot with Home Depot in 2018-19. And so, and the contracts are getting bigger and you're just kind of like, oh, okay. So, I see how this could work. I've had three years of proven revenue. Like I see where I can go. And so now you start thinking of like, of not the projects that will get you attention now, but the projects that will keep you in business for the next five years. Because before that it's six months at a time, then it's, then it's nine months and then it's getting me to 2019. And then it's, so now it's like, okay, well, what this last year of COVID has been for me is um, what, when all my work is taken away and the business can still operate because I've, I've tried to be very fiscally responsible in the business, what are the things that I want to go do? Like, I, I need to find more clients, more people interested to keep the business growing and moving forward. And more so, like, I now have a better understanding of the stories that I am interested in telling. And if I'm so strong on changing my life to pursue my passion, go after these. The scary part of it is that it's attacking skill sets that I don't have. Yeah. Um, it's writing, it's podcasting, it's storytelling, it's video. Uh, but it's skill sets you don't do, have and that's yet. Photos. You know what I mean? You add that yet in yeah. there and you're like, this is the way to get the skill set. Like you don't just wake up one day and magically be able to do 
something like you have to work at it and like you mentioned earlier you got to fail at it and that's the part people don't like (laughs) which makes sense (laughs) yeah but it's the way to do it it's the only way to do it you know you know as somebody that's a trusted photographer to disappoint a client in the industry like that's not and in the community is not uh something i wanted but you have to own up to it and like yeah yeah, i didn't charge like i I didn't deliver the service i took all the video but i didn't deliver you don't charge yeah yeah and you quickly write that that shit. And so you just have to be really honest with yourself about things. So um, the, the it's scary for me. I've had this idea for a year now, but uh, it's really sculpting this project in a way that I don't know the client for it, but I know these stories are important. And my only hope is that by doing all this work, I can um, create the streams of clients that I want to yeah. have carry me for the next five years. So that's centered around um, taking an element of change, like somebody that either had their life voluntarily or involuntarily changed. And whether this just happened last month or whether they've had this for 20 years, telling a variety of those stories to try and motivate other people to either accept the change that we've been given or pursue that thing that they're scared of. And pursuing this project is scary to me. Yeah. And so I've been bulking on getting it started. But um, like I first worked with Sean in 2018 on it. So uh, I sat with him again after ITI and I've got six other people lined up. And so that's where my 2021 is going. Because I think these are very important stories and motivational stories. And to tell them in multiple disciplines, hopefully we can reach more people and have more people confidently pursuing the things that they're interested in. Yeah. Dude, I love that so much, man. I I think that's awesome. Will you, whenever, you know, that gets underway and eventually gets out there, will you please send me a message? One, so I can just watch it as a fan, but two, yeah. I, that way I can share it. And cause I'm a huge believer in that too. And I just think your story is, is really powerful, but combine that passion with other people's stories as well is going to be huge. So so yeah yeah definitely i'll be getting out as much as i possibly can (laughs) when i finish it (laughs) awesome man well hey i gotta ask you one more thing okay i was just in moab uh with my kids and my dad and we went and explored it is the best i love that place it's amazing um was it full-size invasion or something else what's up were you there part of like the the whole four by four full size invasion? No, okay. we were there though and saw that dude. Yeah. That was there were yeah. so many Jeeps, like you could throw a rock yeah. and hit a Jeep. I didn't do that because I would get in trouble. But no, uh <laughs> <laughs> no, we went, you know, it was actually it was a trip we had planned last year over spring break that obviously got canceled. So it was this weird like full circle, like getting through a year of being locked down moment, you know, yep, where I'm like, yep. Hey, now we get to go on this trip with grandpa and we weren't able to before. Um, so it was really cool, but I went there and I just went on a six mile run and it was jaw droppingly beautiful. And, uh, it was the hidden Valley trail. So I just wanted to hear cause Candace said it is actually part of her course, but it's like super early on. So I don't think many people remember that section it's like mile seven through 14 or something but you go up this valley and it's right out of town but just the lasalles are there like i was just curious like in that whole course the moab 240 like what what is a couple spots that you just absolutely love 
Yeah, I mean, Hidden Valley is fantastic. That's great, especially early in the day, you can get this, the southern sun pushing up through that valley and really light it um, very nicely. And then um, not too far from there is, oh, I'm going to get killed. Jackson, Jacobs or Jackson? I hate it. I can never remember. Jacobs Ladder. We're going to call it. It's probably Jackson's. Jacobs Ladder anyway, was that movie, but so it then it's be. Jackson's. <laughs> then it's Jackson's. But I think that's why we all call it Jacobs. So <laughs> I think it's Jackson's Ladder. So that spot is always interesting. Um, oh, dude, you know what? You're going to laugh at this. Ready? I just looked it up. Yeah. It's called Jacobs parentheses jackson's ladder jackson's, so it's both yeah. you were right on both accounts <laughs> <laughs> there I, I have a photo of the trailhead sign um i just can't remember it but yeah so that that section they get into and i always kind of laugh because that section you get to look towards uh, uh horse thief or dead horse yeah state park and, and canyon lands and it's uh i don't know a thousand foot drop or something and um it's stunning and i'll hide myself down so the Runners won't know I'm there all the time. And they don't get to me because they go, they just stand up top and get out their phones and start chatting with each other and take a break and have lunch. And uh, they hang out up there. I think that spot is, is super stunning. Where I smile is I always tell people, I'm like, enjoy it because your next 40 miles is a fire road and it's a furnace. <laughs> this is... This is the it. Like once you descend off this plateau, you're going to be looking up at these things for like the next hundred some miles. Um, <laughs> Do you ever so announce yourself, or are you just hiding there? Like I'd be afraid I'd scare somebody, you know? Yeah, it's hit or miss. Like they, <laughs> for the most part, like since we've shot that, we were always have somebody at that spot, so they're they're expecting somebody yeah. to be there. Oh, okay. Um, I think a little sleeper, a little sleeper spot is out on the way to that section you have to do this little lollipop that follows the river bend and when you come down from that lollipop you just have uh i think it's the green river it goes through the you have the sols. you have these other formations here these like slots over to the south um and so that part is gorgeous uh you know you get probably my favorite stretch of any of the 200 so far is from um what's the aid station bridger to not all the way to indian creek but bridger back like backpacking and so um island bridger to island and it's a stretch where i've never seen anybody else in the four years we've been out there it's a 20-ish mile hike and you just see the layers of the years through all of the rock and you see a few different mesas on top so you can be like oh all of that used to cover this whole area yeah and it doesn't anymore and there's no sounds there's no planes out there there's no four-wheelers there's no motorcycles there's it's there's not a lot of nature out there in terms of like animals and wildlife and so it's just you know, sometimes I'll have half an hour between the runners and you're just sitting there by yourself over this, this cliff edge and seeing all these layers of history and, and time and, and you have no cell service and it's awesome. 
it's amazing That's amazing dude oh my yeah. god now i want to go back i literally just got <laughs> home yesterday I'm like oh let's go back right now dude that's awesome it's, yeah 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 it, well, there's there's this uh what crypto oil i think something like that and um it grows only in millimeters a year like it take 10 years to do a centimeter or whatever and the trails out there the thing that got me to realize nobody goes out there is there is wide as the uh motorcycle tire and some of these towers are three inches tall like if you're in town that thing is six feet wide and trampled yeah the fact that it's out there and it's the width of a shoe and it's that tall like people don't go out to that stretch of trail it's amazing dude you're selling, it's hard you're to get selling out me on this so, man <laughs> you're anyway. selling me on it uh awesome well scott thank you for coming on the show man like i i could yeah. talk to you for hours and hours but i i especially about the mark of the quad cities no i'm just kidding uh <laughs> right what is it now what is it called now i honestly have no idea i remember it because oh it yeah dude they changed a Isn't bunch of their something? names um the river yeah. bandits became the swing for a while and oh yeah, man. It got, it got weird. <laughs> yeah. My yeah. dad used to work the Mallards game at the mark. Uh, he would My work there. The mascot. No way. Really? <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, he would work at, in like the penalty box and like open the door for people. Cause he'd get free tickets yeah, to the yeah. games and he's a huge hockey guy. So he'd yeah. open those and he has so many stories of people pissed off in the penalty box getting cussed out by the coaches all that fun stuff so and it's fun in like a small town like that because there's these the big thing like seeing the smashing pumpkins and having the mallards play and everything but then my brother-in-law goes there with the fire department and plays at 11 o'clock at night and yeah. does their hockey league or like six o'clock at night or something and so it's 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 cool that it's this big venue for the community but at the same time it's where a lot of our uh rec leagues play yeah. too so I got to play youth hockey there one time. It was awesome. So yeah. much fun. But anyways, dude, thank you for coming on, man. I, I can't wait to see your film in the future and, and just catch up at some point. Yeah, no problem. It's been a pleasure. I, uh, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Awesome. All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you guys for listening. Thank you for tuning in. Scott, thank you for coming on the show and uh, <laughs> letting me say the mark of the Quad Cities, which, you know, Man, I this is 254 episodes, and I've yet to say the mark of the Quad Cities. And it's just funny, like, that's one of those places that I look back on, and I'm like, whoa, that was like a, like, I, I had a lot of experiences there that were formative. And, yeah, it's crazy, man. It's, it's nuts. It's crazy to think about those places, and then where it's like, man, I haven't thought of that place in years, but that's awesome. So it was just fun to... uh to talk to someone who kind of like knew my old stomping grounds and stuff like that. So, uh, plus I have to say as someone who is out going to be out there in about 23 days, uh, attempting to visually capture a story of an ultra marathon of an endurance event of something that's ridiculously hard in the form of the desert stage race. Um, it was interesting hearing the perspective and kind of like picking the brain of a visual uh, storyteller, you know, like I, I love doing the podcast is definitely like an audio form of storytelling. Um, you know, as a teacher, you know, sometimes you got those teachers who like bust into a story and uh, you know, talk about 
talk about something that happened in their lives to their students. I've definitely been there. Um, but even those stories are like really visual kind of stories. Like you're trying to paint a picture with your words and now going as I'm going to be like dipping my toe, not dipping my toe as I'm going to be jumping off of a bridge into water, <laughs> not just dipping my toe in the water, but like doing a, you know, a full length documentary, uh, on a endurance race on like a visual format, a visual storytelling format. Like it's just, yeah, it's just interesting to hear because there's so much more. It just like opens up and expands the world. Like things that you would say with your words. Now you can just show instead. I'm sure my much more experienced partner in this endeavor, Paul Shearing, who was a screenwriter would say, show don't tell or something. I feel like that's something screenwriters say. I don't know. But, but anyways, uh, yeah, it'll just be, it'll be fascinating. So I wanted to thank Scott for sharing his knowledge with me. Like it was super fun. Um, I'm excited for his film project, dude. I just love adventure films. I'm a geek about adventure films. These are the things I look for. These are the first things I look for when I go to like Netflix or, you know, Amazon prime and stuff. When I go on there, I'm like, let's look, I want to see an adventure documentary. I want to see a well done interesting fascinating adventure documentary and i've seen a whole bunch at this point and i just love them dude they're like i love them because they inspire me to go have an adventure while also at the same time kind of fascinate me on some of the things that people have sought uh with their own kind of like adventuring it's it's amazing um but as, as for like the whole idea of like stepping out on your own path and like pursuing your destiny, uh, I know I'm like a bunch of years too late to this, uh, to this party. This is how I feel like I always am. I'm always like, Hey, have you heard about something, something? And they're like, yeah, dude, that, that was like five to 10 years ago. And you're like, what? <laughs> I just discovered it. I'm like the guy who just discovers stuff late. Um, but I recently read the alchemist. Uh, which is a fiction book, but it is about pursuing your personal destiny, um, about pursuing the thing in life that is going to make life worth living. Uh, I am way late on this because I just looked it up. It's from 1998, my dude, or sorry, 1988. Dang, I don't even know how how much older that is. <laughs> um, so I'm a little late to the party on this thing. But I read it and I'm going to reread it before heading out to Deserats because there's a lot in there. And it's basically like written as if it's like a fable um, about this shepherd who decides he's going to pursue his life's destiny, which is in the form of like buried treasure. But it's across the Sahara Desert. And just to combine it with an adventure film, I watched the uh, running the Sahara with Ray Zahab, who's been on the podcast, who's amazing. He's just a good dude. Uh, but I read that book while like right after watching that movie, I'm like, they did that. They went across the Sahara on their own two feet. Um, and in the alchemist, like the lessons that he learns along the way, which are basically like, Hey, along pursuing this journey, you're going to face resistance and you know, at every step of the way, there'll be something inside of you, inside of you, mostly, most of the time it's not outward, but most of the time it's inward 
that will tell you to stop, that'll tell you not to keep going. Um, and that's that internal resistance that we face so often where you're like, why am I doing this? This is dumb. I'm not good enough. I'm an imposter. Um, you know, why do, why do I think I can do this um, kind of voice that's in your head? And man, let me tell you, I've been working on this film project for like almost a year at this point. And that voice has been in there so much. Um, I've had that voice in my head during races where I find myself doing really well. And then all of a sudden you get that internal resistance where it's like, you're going to mess up, dude. You know, you're going to mess this up. And you have to like <laughs> figure out a way to shut that voice down and just keep going. And the best thing I've learned from endurance races is you just, you just keep going. You just keep doing it. And you're like, I don't care voice. Like if I fail, if I fall flat on my face, um, what am I going to learn along the way? Like I'll learn lessons by, by doing this and that I wouldn't have learned otherwise succeed or quote unquote fail. Um, which is really interesting. The alchemist kind of digs into that because there's many moments, you know, if I'm thinking about Scott's journey, sorry, I'm like all over the place in this outro. Uh, if I'm thinking about Scott's journey, um, while combined with the alchemist, I just remember there's a part in the book where the main character, the shepherd boy, like basically I can't remember what he does. He like starts a job in a town. He just moves into this town, starts his job and then makes it really successful. And basically he's like, well, I'm super successful here. I'm comfy. I'm cozy. Like why should I quit that, leave that behind and pursue this personal destiny thing that I'm actually really passionate about. I could be comfortable here. Um, and ultimately he obviously decides to leave that comfort behind in pursuit of what's really, truly calling to his heart. Um, and I think with Scott's story, like, dude, that's exactly what he did. <laughs> he might've been the dude from the alchemist because he basically was like, Hey, I have this thing. Like I could keep doing it. I could be comfy here. I could be mildly satisfied but it's not the thing that I truly want to do with my life. And ultimately, like, it's your life. Like, you know, you're making the choices. You're in control. You're steering the ship. So, yeah. So that was my really weird all over the place outro about the alchemist, Scott Rokas, and Desert Rats. <laughs> Stay trace. <laughs> um which is obviously on my mind a whole bunch. Uh, I know I've mentioned it in the last few shows. We are now over 50% of our fundraising for the event on Indiegogo. Uh, if you have the means to uh, help back our project, uh, I would be completely grateful. If the film, if you're like an adventure film junkie like me, uh, if you back it for $25, you'll basically just get the film when we get it done, which will be in a while. It'll be like, you know, it could be upwards of like a year, a year and a half after the actual filming occurs because editing, I've been told, is the thing that takes forever, which makes sense. I made that trailer for it and it's two minutes long. The trailer took me 12 hours to edit. Um, luckily, we will have a professional editor <laughs> and not me editing and being like, this is like, that is hard, dude. Editing stuff, dude, those folks, 
man, that's a, that's exhausting, but it's awesome. Like they're so huge and like a part of a storytelling. Anyways, that's a side note. Um, we'll get back at you guys next week. I hope you guys are having a wonderful start of your summer. I don't know if it's actually summer yet, but it feels like summer and um, I have a half more day of school. So there you go. So it's basically summer for me. Um, but yeah, hope you guys are having a great start to that. Hope you have a bunch of adventures planned. Like go out, seek that adventure, find out something about yourself, learn something about yourself uh, and grow. It's, it's, it's the best way and it's awesome. So uh, we'll talk to you guys next week.